0: The God's Pure People Podcast presents a recording of the life of D.L. Moody by his son, William R. Moody. The Life of D.L. Moody, Chapter 18. The Awakening in Edinburgh. The success of the American evangelists in the north of England led to an investigation of their methods, and after some hesitation they were invited to Edinburgh and held their first service in the Music Hall, the largest in the city, on Sunday, November twenty-third, 1873. Mr. Moody was slightly indisposed that evening, and the following day Mr. Sankey's organ was broken, and Mr. Moody was obliged to conduct the meeting without him. Yet, at the opening service, not only was the hall densely packed in every cranny, but the lobbies, stairs, and interests were all crowded, and several thousand people went away, unable to obtain admission. On the weekdays following, the evening service was held in Barclay Free Church, and every foot of the standing room in the large edifice was occupied every night by attentive crowds. The attendance at each meeting must have exceeded 2,000. On the evening of the second Sunday, special services were held in three churches, the Barclay Church, beginning at 6 o'clock, the View Fourth Church at 7 o'clock, and the Fountain Church at 8 o'clock. Long before the time appointed, all three churches were filled to overflowing, and hundreds were turned away. The second week the meetings were held the in the Broughton Place United Presbyterian Church, and the numbers continued to increase. "The part of the service toward which all the rest tends, and in which the power culminates," said a writer in the Edinburgh Daily Review, "is the address of mr Moody, in which, in simple figures and telling language, he holds up before men the truth as it is in Jesus, and makes most earnest and powerful appeals to heart and conscience. mr Moody is strikingly free from all pretence and parade. He speaks as one who thoroughly believes what he says, and who is downright earnest in delivering his message. His descriptions are characterized by a remarkable vividness and graphic power. He has a great wealth of illustration, and his illustrations are always apposite, bringing into the clearest light the point which he intends to illustrate, and fixing it forever into the memory. There is very little excitement, there is no extravagance, but the effect of the service is seen in the manifest impression produced on the audience, generally in the anxious inquiries, varying in number from about forty to upward of seventy who remained for spiritual conversation and prayer after each meeting. And also been the hundreds of persons in all the grades of the social scale scattered Edinburgh in Edinburgh and the neighborhood, who are more or less awakened to realize the importance of eternal things, and are burdened with a sense of sin and a longing to obtain salvation. Not a few also profess to have been brought out of darkness into marvelous light, and to be going on their way, rejoicing. In Edinburgh, as in every city where missions were held, the daily noonday prayer meeting was established, the deep interest manifested in this meeting was shown in two ways first in the number of requests for prayers sent in by persons seeking a blessing for themselves or others of which more than a hundred were handed in at each meeting representing the burdens the cares the longings of many a heart with the request for thanksgiving and praise for former prayers answered and blessings bestowed second by the large attendance more than 500 persons being present the first day the number steadily increasing until at the end of the first week the queen street hall was found to be too small for a time, there was some difficulty in fixing on a suitable place. The Rev. Alexander White of Free St. George's offered his church for the prayer meeting. But finally, on account of its central situation, the Free Church Assembly Hall was selected. The attendance soon reached a thousand, and often exceeded that number. The first half hour was employed in singing the part of a psalm or hymn, reading briefly the request for prayer and praying, followed by a few remarks from Mr. Moody on some passage of scripture. During the second half of the meeting, anyone could speak or pray or call for him. hymn. Many ministers and laymen of the various evangelistic denominations in Edinburgh and Leith gladly welcomed Mr. Moody on his arrival in the city, and threw themselves heartily into the work. Others, who at first had difficulties and stood somewhat aloof, found their objections melting away with personal contact, and identified themselves cordially with the work. It was delightful to witness the unbroken unity and brotherly love that prevailed among all engaged in the movement. denominational differences were for the time lost sight of. The Rev. Andrew Thompson, pastor of the Broughton Place United Presbyterian Church, thus expressed himself, There is nothing novel in the doctrine Mr. Moody proclaims. It is the old gospel, old and yet always fresh and young, as a living fountain or the morning sun, in which the substitution of Christ is placed in the center and presented with admirable distinctness and decision. It is spoken with the most impressive directness not as by a man half convinced and who seems always to find that a skeptic is looking over his shoulder, but with a certainty of the truth of what he says, as if, like our own Andrew Fuller, he could venture his eternity on it, as if he felt that, if he did not speak, the very stones would cry out. I would not for the wealth of the world have the recollection of what I have seen and heard during the past week blotted out from my memory. When Howe was chaplain to Cromwell at Whitehall, he became weary of the trumpery and pomp of the palace, and wrote to his dear and honored brother, Richard Braxter, telling him how much he longed to be back again in his beloved work at Torrington. I have devoted myself, he said, to serving God in the work of the ministry, and how could I lack the pleasure of hearing their cryings and complaints who have come to me under conviction? I have shared with many beloved brethren during the past week in the sacred pleasure, it is like eating angel's bread, first to hear the cry of conviction, and then the joy of reconciliation and peace. I was much struck by the variety among the inquirers. There were present from the old man of seventy-five, to the youth of eleven, soldiers from the castle, students from the university, the backsliding, the intemperate, the skeptic, the rich and the poor, the educated and the uneducated, and in how many cases were the wounded healed and the burden eased. The fourth week of the special meetings began in St. Stephen's established church on Tuesday evening, December 16th, where the services were continued for three evenings. Admission was by ticket, and the church was crowded in every part, two thousand people being present at each meeting. St. Stephen's congregation is composed largely of the upper class, many of whom attended and were deeply impressed by the preaching and singing. The Reverend Dr. Nicholson presided, and every evening there was present ministers of all denominations from all parts of the country, while representatives of the nobility, professors from the university, and distinguished lawyers and parliamentary leaders were also in evidence. The Free Assembly Hall was crowded one Sunday evening with Sunday school teachers. Everyone present felt that his work among the young called for absolute consecration and a high level of Christian life. In the evening, the same building was filled with students. Around the platform were professors from nearly all the faculties in the university, and several professors from the Free Church College. Hundreds applied for admission in vain, and the Free High Church was opened and services conducted there, as well as in the Assembly Hall. Professor Blakey thus referred to the blessing which had come to the ministers of the city. It would be difficult to enumerate the ministers, who have taken a prominent and most hearty interest in the movement. The utter absence of jealousy, the cordial cooperation of the clergy of all denominations in the work, has been extremely striking. They have gained in no ordinary measure the esteem of the laity by the cordiality, seeming to think nothing of the fact that strangers from another country have been the instrument, all of the feelings being apparently swallowed up in thankfulness for the blessing that has come. At the same time, there is a very general feeling that the wonderful work is due in large degree to the faithful labors and earnest prayer of the clergy and the Christian people of Edinburgh, although the peculiar gifts of the strangers have been especially blessed it is amusing to observe how entirely the latent distrust of Mr. Sankey's kisto whistles has disappeared. There are different ways of using the organ. There are organs in some churches for mere display, as someone has said, with the devil in every pipe. But a little harmonium designed to keep it tuned right, is a different matter, and there seemed to be no hindrance to the devout and spiritual worship of God. The interest manifested in Edinburgh attracted the attention of Scotland generally, and brought invitations for missions in other cities." Requests that not only by ministers, but by councillors and leading citizens were received daily from towns large and small, and the desire for his Moody's services seemed to be remarkably serious and earnest. It was not to gratify curiosity, but to promote spiritual and eternal good that his presence was sought. Even remote rural parishes in Scotland met to pray for a blessing on his labors, and the belief prevailed that what was then going on in Edinburgh was spread over the country. Never probably, said Professor Blakey, was Scotland so stirred. Never was there so much expectation. The meetings increased in numbers and in spiritual interest as the weeks went by. One Sunday morning, Mr. Moody preached to the young men in the free assembly hall at nine o'clock. The place was filled to overflowing, although the admission was by ticket. At the close of the service, a gentleman appealed to him for another effort among the young men. Mr. Moody replied that if those present would get up another meeting for unconverted young men, he would address them, and he asked all those who were willing to work to stand up. The whole audience rose, and the second meeting was held on Friday evening. On Sunday evening, the Free Assembly Hall, the Established Assembly Hall, and the Free High Church were all filled to overflowing, as well as Free St. John's Church. All denominational differences were forgotten. Professor Charteris spoke in the Free Church. Professor Blakey spoke in the Established Church. Brethren from all parts of the country came together in unity of a common need and a common savior. So deep was the spiritual awakening, the following circular letter was sent to every minister in Scotland. Edinburgh was now enjoying Signal Manifestations of Grace. Many of the Lord's people are not surprised at this. Ministers and others have been, for some time, discerning tokens of special interest and expectation tending the ordinary administration of the word, and in October and November last, many Christians of various denominations met from time to time to pray for it. They hoped that they might have a visit from Mr. Moody and Sankey of America, but they very earnestly besought the Lord that he would deliver them from depending upon them or on any instrumentality, and that he himself would come with them or come before them. He has graciously answered that prayer, and his own presence is now wonderfully manifested among them. God is so affecting the hearts of men that the Free Church Assembly Hall, the largest public building in Edinburgh, is crowded every evening with meetings for prayer, and both that building and the established church assembly hall overflow whenever the gospel is preached. But the numbers that are attend are not the most remarkable feature. It is the presence and power of the Holy Ghost, the solemn awe, the prayerful, believing, expectant spirit, the anxious inquiry of unsaved souls and the longing of believers to grow more like Christ, their hungering and thirsting after holiness. The hall of the Tubuth Parish Church and Free High Church are nightly attended by anxious inquirers. All denominational and social distinctions are entirely merged. All this is of the grace of God. Another proof of the Holy Spirit's presence is that a desire has been felt and expressed in these meetings that all Scotland should share the blessing that the capital is now enjoying. It is impossible that our beloved friends from America should visit every place, or even all those, where they have been urged to go. But this is not necessary. The Lord is willing himself to go wherever he is truly invited. He is waiting. The Lord's people in Edinburgh, therefore, would affectionately entreat all their brethren throughout the land to be active in invoking him to come down to them and to dismiss all doubt as to his being willing to do so. The week of prayer for the 4th to the 11th of January next affords a favorable opportunity for combined action. In every town and hamlet, let there be a daily meeting for prayer during the week, and also as often as may be before it. In Edinburgh the hour is from twelve to one o'clock, and where at the same hour suits other places it would be well to meet together in faith at the throne of grace. But let the prayers not be formal, unbelieving, unexpecting, but short, fervent, earnest entreaties, with abounding praise and frequent short exhortations. Let them entreat a blessing on all the means of grace enjoyed by our native land, and let them also embrace the whole world, that God's way may be known upon earth, his saving health among all nations. If the country will thus fall on its knees, the God, who has filled our national history with the wonders of his love, will come again, and surprise even the strongest believers by the unprecedented tokens of his grace. Call upon me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. While the Holy Spirit was daily, and hourly approving the work of the evangelist, the power of darkness was not idle. A Scotchman in Chicago, a lawyer by profession, sent a scurrilous letter to a prominent clergyman in Scotland, attacking both the commercial honesty and the religious character of Mr. Moody. Unsupported by the slightest evidence, the charges were made that he had sold information regarding the interest of one of his employees to a business rival, and further, that he was insincere in his attitude towards the doctrine so dear to Scottish hearts. The letter was widely distributed in manuscript copies, in places where it would do the greatest possible harm, and where it would be the most difficult to counteract its influence. At last, a copy fell into the hands of the Edinburgh Committee, and steps were taken to ascertain the truth or falsity of the statements made. Mr. Moody was deeply exercised over the letter for the sake of the work in Scotland, although perfectly conscious of his rectitude. He trusted his reputation implicitly to his Heavenly Father, and demanded that the Committee who had invited him to Edinburgh give the matter a thorough investigation. The Rev. John Kelman of Free St. John's Slythe, the Secretary of the Edinburgh Committee, and the man who had gone to Newcastle to see Mr. Moody's work, and who was in a large measure responsible for his visits to Scotland, sent a copy of the letter to Mr. Farwell in Chicago, saying, "'The friends of religion who have been associated in Christian work with Mr. Moody in this country are anxious that there should be a thorough investigation of the truth or falsity of these charges. I have been requested to apply to you in the hope that you be kind enough to furnish me at your earliest convenience with whatever information you can obtain as to the facts in the case.'" The following communication, signed by the 35 clergymen, educators, editors, and secretaries, who had known Mr. Moody and his work in Chicago, was sent to the Edinburgh Committee. We, the undersigned pastors of the city of Chicago, learning that the Christian character of D.L. Moody has been attacked for the purpose of destroying his influence as an evangelist in Scotland, hereby certify that his labors in the Young Men's Christian Association, and as an evangelist in this city and elsewhere, according to the best information we can get, have been evangelical and Christian in the highest sense of these words, and we do not hesitate to commend him as an earnest Christian worker, worthy of the confidence of our Scottish and English brethren, with whom he is now laboring, believing that the Master will be honored by them in receiving him among them as a co-laborer in the vineyard of the Lord. Later, C. M. Henderson, the nephew of his former employees, the successor to the business and the head of the house at the time the criticism was made, said, For fifteen years since Mr. Moody left us, I have watched him, assisted him, and believed in him and until the death of Mr. Henderson a few years ago, he was a frequent contributor to Mr. Moody's work, severe as had been the test of faith, and bitter as had been the experience during two or three months before his slander was run down and killed. The outcome gave Mr. Moody a hold upon Scotland, which is doubtful he could have secured if all men had spoken well of him. Along with the Edinburgh meeting, services were held in length, in the Free North Life Church, Dr. Macdonald's, and in the Free St. John's, the Reverend Jake Helmons. These meetings were important from the fact that the large shipping interests of the town attracted people from almost all parts of the world. Many seafaring men attended the services, and the influence extended not only throughout the great population of Scotland, but was carried in ships around the world. Toward the end of the Edinburgh meetings, Dr. Horatius Bonner sent a letter which, although not intended for publication, had been so frequently requested by the public that it was printed and an extract is given herewith. After referring to the meeting in the corn exchange with its great crowd of listeners, most of them from the grass market and the cowgate, he says, "'These American brethren bring us no new gospel, nor do they pretend to novelty of any kind in their plans, say perhaps that of giving greater prominence to the singing of hymns, conveying the good news to those hearers through the instrumentality. We may trust them. They fully deserve our confidence.' the more we know of them in private, the more we appreciate them, and the more do we feel inclined to cast in our lot with them. We ask for soundness in faith, and we do well. These men are sound. We ask for a consistent, humble life, and we do well. These men are consistent and humble. We ask for self-denial, and we do well. These men are self-denying, hard-working men, who are spending and being spent in a service which they believe, not human but divine." We ask for definite aims, an ultimatum, in which self shall have no place, and we do well. These men have the most definite of all definite aims, winning souls to everlasting joy, and they look for no fame and no reward, save the master's approval, the recompense in reserve for those who turn away to righteousness. They have in view no sinister nor sordid motives, as their past histories show, as everyone who associates with them must feel. Besides all this, it is vain to try to stop them they will work, and they will speak, whoever shall say nay. Let us work among them. Roland Hill was once asked the question, When do you intend to stop? Not until we have carried all before us, was his answer. So say our brethren in Chicago, we say amen. Heaven and earth say amen. The work is great and the time is short, but strength is not of man, but of God. The most remarkable meeting, perhaps, held in Edinburgh, was that held during the closing hour of the year, 1873. There were many misgivings as to the possibility of keeping a large audience together from eight o'clock until twelve on the last night of the year. Mr. Moody's expectations, however, were justified by the people which filled the free assembly hall for five hours on that evening. Many of all ages and classes stood all the evening, or exchanged places occasionally with those who had seats near them. Mr. Moody entered the hall at eight o'clock, accompanied by many ministers and laymen. The congregation had already been waiting for them an hour. After singing and praying, he announced that the order for the evening would be— Uttermost irregularity in fact anything that is worship will be in order and when i am speaking if anyone has an illustration to give or would like to sing a hymn or offer prayer let him do so this singular invitation was at once accepted and acted upon by many speakers and gave constant variety to the meeting so that the interest never flagged mr sankey and the fisk jubilee singer sang hymns frequently soon after eleven o'clock bible study ceased and the remainder of the session was given to prayer During the week of prayer, the services continued, with remarkable results. On January 14th, Mr. Moody presided at an all-day Christian convention, held in the Free Church Assembly Hall, which was largely attended. The Tollbrook established church and the Free High Church were equally crowded. people from the surrounding country poured in by hundreds, and some were there who had come fifty, a hundred, and two hundred miles. Dr. Bonner opened the proceedings with an address on personal effort. Reports were received from Newcastle and other places where Mr. Moody had held meetings. Showing that the work which had been started had gone on after they had left the place, an hour was devoted to the question drawer, which Mr. Moody conducted. The services closed with an address by him on works. Donald MacAllan, the chairman of an infidel club in Edinburgh, for many years had given great trouble to the Carubas closed workers. He sent to a meeting in the Free Assembly Hall to have an argument with the evangelist. Instead of arguing with him, Mr. Moody dealt with him as with a man needing salvation asking if he had ever heard or known of anyone who wished to be saved by Jesus, and had come to him and been refused. Reluctantly he admitted that he did not know of any such case. No, said Mr. Moody, the scripture cannot be broken. Do you know we are praying for you? And you will yet be converted. Later on, in the town of Wick, Mr. Moody met this man again, and saw that the spirit was dealing with him. On his return to Edinburgh, MacAllan was attending a meeting which was being addressed by James Balfour, when he suddenly became converted. American papers heard of this story and denied its truth, but at a meeting subsequently held in the Free Assembly Hall, Mr. Moody told the story of the conversion, and its denial, adding, I understand that this former infidel is present in this meeting. If so, will he kindly rise and bear witness to the fact of his conversion? Mr. MacAllan rose near the spot where Mr. Moody had first dealt with him, admitted that he had been the infidel who had formerly opposed the gospel so bitterly, and declared what great things the Lord had done for him. During these Edinburgh meetings, Mr. Moody took occasion to reply to some criticism, which had appeared in the daily papers. These were to the effect that he had cast a slight on the educated ministry in one of his addresses at the recent all-day conference in Glasgow. Mr. Moody asserted that he had said he did believe in an educated ministry, and appealed for cooperation to those present who had heard him. Many young men entered on Christian work far too late in life for them to go through the regular college course. The Church ought to take these men in hand and give them the opportunity for doing that which they are fitted. Peter, the unlettered fisherman, did work as good as Paul, the man educated. Of course, Paul did some special duties better because of his education, but there are some kinds of work that men, whether educated or not, are not fitted for. Why should not devoted Christian women be trained to hold mothers' meetings, cottage prayer meetings, and to teach young mothers cooking, dressmaking, and so forth? This is a practical kind of Christianity for which only consecrated and trained women are fitted. The church ought also to train helpers to go around among the people and get hold of the non-churchgoers and in that way supplement the regular ministry. The time has come to call out the volunteers. In Scotland, there are piety and education and money enough to evangelize the whole world. If a man has a desire for a university education, let him have it by all means, but it is not necessary for everyone to know Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. As a finishing stroke on this point, Mr. Moody quaintly observed that he regretted exceedingly that he had never had a college education himself, but he did not get it, and he was doing the best he could without it. The Life of D.L. Moody, Chapter 19, in Glasgow and the Scottish Towns Glasgow was visited after the Edinburgh missions were closed. In fact, preparations began as soon as the Edinburgh work started. In the middle of December, a meeting was held in Glasgow to arrange for the visit of the Americans, which was attended by more than a hundred ministers and laymen of all the evangelical churches. At the first of a series of union prayer meetings in St. George's established church on January 5th, Mr. Moody spoke briefly returning to Edinburgh for the evening meeting. After beginning their work in Glasgow, he returned to Edinburgh two or three times to assist in special meetings. Berwick-on-Tweed, Melrose, and Dundee were visited, and meetings lasting a few days each were conducted there, after the Edinburgh mission closed. The Glasgow meetings had been going on uninterruptedly for more than a month when Moody and Sankey reached there on February 7th, and began their labors on the following morning, February 8th, at nine o'clock a stirring meeting of sabbath school teachers was held in the city hall attended by about three thousand the evening evangelistic service was held at half past six but more than an hour but more than an hour before that time the city hall was crowded and the great multitude outside was drafted off to the three churches nearest which were soon filled the next day prayer meeting began in the morning in the united presbyterian church dr bonner thus referred to the meeting not long after they were started There have been not a few awakened of late, and the interest is deepening. The ministers of all denominations take part most cordially. Men are coming from great distances to ask the way of life, awakened to this concern by no directly human means, but evidently by the Holy Spirit, who is breathing over the land. It is such a time as we have never had in Scotland before. The same old gospel, as of aforetime, is preached to all men. Christ, who has made sin for us. Christ, the substitute. Christ's blood. Christ's righteousness, Christ crucified, the power of God and the wisdom of God unto salvation. But now the gospel is preached with the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven. And amid all this the enemy is restrained, so that we are reminded of Revelation 7, 1-3, the time before the coming of the Lord, when the four angels are charged to let no storm burst in, nor to allow the wind of heaven to ruffle the sea's smooth surface, or move the leaf of any tree, until the seal of the living God has been put upon his elect is not the ceiling going on daily among us are not the four angels looking on us surely it is the time to seek the lord that he may rain righteousness upon us from glasgow as a center occasional meetings were arranged in adjoining towns and helensburgh greenock and paisley were visited while the ministers of glasgow and other cities took the regular meetings during the absence of mr moody on thursday april 16th a convention of ministers office-bearers, and other Christians from all parts of Scotland and the north of England, were held in the Crystal Palace Botanical Gardens. Five thousand people were present, the larger proportion being men. Professor Charteris of Edinburgh read a paper showing how the revival movement could be advanced and directed into the ordinary church channels. Professor Fairburn of the Free College spoke upon the great doctrines which had been emphasized during the meeting doctor Carnes of Berwick, Mr Van meter of Rome and others took part. One of the most impressive gatherings during this mission was the meeting held in the Gibley Crystal Palace, especially for warehouse girls, of whom there were probably more than twelve thousand in the city. Tickets were issued, and while five thousand were seated in the building and several hundred standing, outside was a crowd of more than a thousand girls. On the following evening the meeting was held for young men, when nearly six thousand were brought together. A service was held for children also and another for young women. The first meeting was held in the Botanical Garden on the following Sunday. Mr. Sankey found his way into the building and began the service with six or seven thousand, who were crushed together there, but so great was the crowd outside, estimated at twenty or thirty thousand people, that Mr. Moody himself could not get inside. Standing on the coachman's box of the carriage in which he was driven, he asked the members of the choir to sing. They found a place for themselves on the roof of a low shed near the building. After they had sung, Mr. Moody preached for an hour on immediate salvation so distinct was his voice that the great crowd could hear him without difficulty the evening was beautiful the air calm the sun near it setting the deep green foliage of the trees that enclosed the ground framed the scene writing of this a witness said we thought of the days of george whitfield of such a scene as that mentioned in his life when in seventeen fifty three at glasgow twenty thousand souls hung on his lips as he bade them farewell here there were thirty thousand eager hearers For by this time the thousands within the crystal palace had come out though their numbers quietly melted into the main body did not make a very perceptible addition to the crowd and many onlookers who knew something of such gatherings were inclined to estimate the number much higher after the sermon mr moody asked all these who wished to attend the inquiry meetings to enter the palace those who could remain were requested to gather in the neighboring church calvinside for prayer in a few minutes the crystal palace was filled And when Mr. Moody asked for those who were unsaved, and yet anxious to be saved, two thousand people rose to their feet. It was a strange and solemn night. So many unsaved, and yet seeking salvation, said a spectator, it makes the heart yearn in an intense desire for them. Assuredly, it was of the Lord that these two thousand should thus appeal to the Lord's people for help, the very moment when these special meetings were brought to a close. It was a sight that summoned the Lord's people to continue every effort in their behalf, hastening with sharpened sickles to the field ready for harvest. Thursday, May 24th being the Queen's birthday, and a general holiday in Edinburgh, a farewell meeting was held on the grassy slopes between Arthur's Seat and Salisbury Craig, above Holyrood. Here Mr. Moody preached to an audience of 20,000, and the scenes witnessed in Glasgow the previous Sunday were repeated. From Glasgow Mr. Moody went to the north of Scotland. In Dundee, where he was holding meetings, he was taken to visit a bedridden cripple and the conversation he held there left a lifelong impression upon him, and in an after-years frequently figured as an illustration in his sermons. The sufferer had fallen and broken his back when he was a boy of fifteen. He had lain on his bed for about forty years, and could not be moved without great pain. Probably not a day had passed in all those years without acute suffering. But day after day the grace of God had been granted to him, and his chambers seemed as near as heaven as one could get on earth." "'I can imagine that when the angels passed over Dundee, "'they had to stop there for a refreshment,' said Mr. Moody. "'When I saw him, I thought he must be beyond reach of the tempter, "'and I asked him, "'Doesn't Satan ever tempt you to doubt God, "'and to think that he is a hard master?' "'Oh, yes,' he says. "'He does try to tempt me. "'I lie here and see my old schoolmates "'driving along in their carriages, "'and Satan says, "'If God is so good, "'why does he keep you here all these years? "'You might have been a rich man, "'riding in your own carriage. "'Then I see a man who was young when I was, "'walking by in perfect health.' And Satan whispers, If God loved you, couldn't he have kept you from breaking your back? What do you do when Satan tempts you? Ah, I just take him to Calvary, and I show him Christ, and I point out those wounds in his hands and feet and side, and say, Doesn't he love me? And the fact is, he got such a scare, eighteen hundred years ago, that he cannot stand it. He leaves me every time. That bedridden saint had not much trouble with doubts. He was too full of the grace of God." At Aberdeen no building could accommodate the audience and on Sabbath afternoon june fourteenth the meeting was held on the links in the natural amphitheatre of the broad hill where a platform had been erected for choir and speakers some ten thousand people were around the platform long before the hour of the meeting and when mr moody spoke on the wages of sin death it is estimated that from twenty to twenty-two thousand people heard his words montrose birchen forfar Huntsley, where more than fifteen thousand people were gathered the open air in the open-air services, Inverness, Arbroath, Tane, Nairn, Elgin, Forres, Granttown, Keith, Ise, and Campbelltown were some of the places visited during the summer. An employer was converted at one of the meetings in another part of Scotland. He was very anxious that all of his employees should be reached, and he used to send them one by one to the meetings. But there was one employee who wouldn't attend. The moment he heard of his employer's desire, he made up his mind he wouldn't go. If he was going to be converted, he said, he was going to be converted under some ordained minister. He was not going to any meeting that was conducted by unordained Americans. He believed in the regular Presbyterian Church of Scotland, and that was the place for him to be converted. "'After we left that town and went away to Inverness,' said Mr. Moody, in relating the incident, the employer had some business up there, and he sent this man to manage it. One night, as I was preaching on the bank of a river, I happened to take for my text the words, Naaman. I thought.' I was trying to take men's thoughts up, and to show the difference between their thoughts and God's thoughts. This man was walking along the bank of the river. He saw a great crowd, and heard someone talking, and wondered what this man was talking about. He didn't know we were in the city, so he drew up to the crowd and listened. He heard the sermon, and became convicted, and converted right there. Then he inquired who was the preacher, and he found out it was the very man whom he said he would not hear, the man he disliked. The very man he had been talking against was the man God used to reach him. An all-day meeting was held in Inverness on August 27th. Mr. Moody, with a few friends, then went down to the Caldonian Canal to Oban, where much preparatory work had been done during the two preceding months by doctors Horatius and Andrew Bonner. After a few hours rest at the home of Sir William MacKinnon at Bellenacal, he concluded his stay in Scotland by a trip to Campbelltown. A year after the evangelist left Glasgow, Dr. Andrew Bonner said, We in Glasgow, who have watched this movement and taken part in it, are aware that our testimony cannot have much influence on those to whom we are strangers. But to any of those who will listen, we should like to testify to the permanence of the work among us, and any who will come and see for themselves will at once discover how extensive and sincere this work has been. Personally I can say, and many of my brethren, are prepared to make the same statement, that the fruit of last year has been as satisfactory in every way as any period in my ministry while it has also had some new features of special interest. There have indeed been cases of backsliding, but what of that? Is not the parable of the sower true in all ages? In his biography of Henry Drummond, Dr. George Adam Smith states that the power of the revival movement in Scotland at this time spread beyond the congregations immediately gathered, and that one of its most striking features was the social and philanthropic work it stimulated. Like all religious revivals, he says, this one had its origin among merely well-to-do classes, and at first offered some ground for the sneers at religion which were cast upon it. But Mr. Moody, who had a knowledge of the city and the power to bring up before others the vision of its needs, inspired the Christians of Glasgow to attempt missions to the criminal classes and the relief of the friendless. The lodging houses were visited with every haunt of vagrants about the brick kilns upon the south side and elsewhere. Timbert's work was organized, and although there were, as always, that work, very many disappointments a large number of poor drunkards were befriended and reformed a huge tent was raised on the green and afterwards replaced by a hall which became the scene of a sabbath morning breakfast to the poor and the center of a great deal of other philanthropic activity new interest was aroused in industrial schools and on the advice of sheriff watson a veteran in this line of education an industrial feeding school was established for ill-fed and ill-clad children at Saltcoats, a house was bought and furnished for orphans New impulses were given to the Orphan of Scotland, founded in 1871 by Mr. Querrier, who, with his fellow workers among the poor of Glasgow, has given inestimable assistance to Mr. Moody's mission. A boarding house for young women was opened in Glasgow. Mr. Moody gave great attention to the Young Men's Christian Associations, and at the height of the movement secured very large subscriptions for their foundation or expansion. He felt strongly that they had been conducted upon methods which were either too vague or too narrow and that, for their success, clear and liberal views were needed. He defined their aim to promote the spiritual instincts and look after the temporal welfare of young men. Each sought to be a nursery of Christian character, a more efficient evangelistic agency, a center of social meetings, and a means of furthering the progress of young men in the general pursuits of life. But along with liberality in their minds, you must have thoroughness in detail. The spiritual must be distinctly dominant. Do not, however, put the association in place of the Church, It is not a handmaid and a feeder of the church. For every man it must find some work, and use every particle of power in the young convert. Professor Smith has not been able to trace with exactness how Henry Drummond was drawn into the movement by Mr. Moody, but from the first he says, Drummond felt Mr. Moody's sincerity and the practical wisdom of the new methods. The aim at the individual, the endeavor to arouse and secure him, was what he had missed in ordinary church methods and now found. The inquiry meetings bridged the gap between the preacher and the hearer and brought them together, man to man, before God. On his side, Mr. Moody was feeling the need of a young man to take charge of the meetings for young men, and it is a tribute to his insight that he chose one whose style and taste were so different from his own. At first, Drummond was employed, like other students, only in the inquiry room. From working in the inquiry room, he began to address meetings. After some time, Mr. Moody sent him to continue the work among young men at places where he had visited and Sunderland, alone one thousand persons, gave in their names as converts, the Reverend James Stalker and the Reverend John F. Ewing, working with Drummond. Newcastle and other towns in which Mr. Moody had held meetings were in turn visited by the three Scotchmen. The Sunderland mission made Drummond a man, says Professor Smith. He won from it not only the power of organizing and leading his fellow men, but that insight into character and knowledge of life on its lowest as, on its highest levels, that power of interest in every individual he met, which so brilliantly distinguishes him and in later years made us who were his friends, feel as if his experiences and sympathies were exhaustless. The Reverend Dr. John Watson recently made this reference to Mr. Moody's relations with Professor Drummond. As soon as Moody came to Edinburgh, Drummond aligned himself with the most capable, honest, and unselfish evangelist of our day, and saw strange chapters in religious life through the United Kingdom. This was the infirmary in which he learned spiritual diagnosis. W. Robert Nicoll, editor of the British Weekly, in his introduction to Drummond's ideal life, speaks as follows regarding the awakening in Scotland and the relation to it of Moody and Drummond. A crisis was sure to come, and it might very well have been a crisis which would have broken the Church in pieces. That it did not was due largely to the influence of one man, the American evangelist Mr. Moody. In 1873, Mr. Moody commenced his campaign in the Barclay Free Church, Edinburgh, a few days before, Drummond had read a paper to the Theological Society of his college on spiritual diagnosis, in which he maintained that preaching was not the most important thing, but that personally dealing with those in anxiety would yield better results. In other words, he thought that practical religion might be treated as an exact science. He had given himself to scientific study, with a view of standing for the degree of Doctor of Science. Mr. had once made a deep impression in Edinburgh, and attracted the ablest students. He missed in this country a serious religious provision for young men, and he thought that young men could be best moulded by young men. With his keen American eye, he perceived that Drummond was his best instrument, and he immediately associated him in his work. It had almost magical results, from the very first Drummond attracted and deeply moved crowds, and the issue was that for two years he gave himself to this work of evangelism in England, in Scotland and Ireland. During this period he came to know the life histories of young men in all classes. He made himself a great speaker. He knew how to seize the critical moment, and his modesty, his refinement, his gentle and generous nature, his manliness, and above all, his profound conviction, won for him disciples in every place he visited. His companions were equally busy in their own lines, and in this way the free church was saved. THE LIFE OF D.L. Moody. CHAPTER Twenty, IRISH AND ENGLISH CITIES. On the conclusion of the Scottish mission, efforts were made to induce Mr. Moody to visit London. The interest awakened in Scotland had attracted the attention of the Christian public throughout Great Britain, and it was felt that a mission in London would be attended with marked results. When asked to conduct a mission, he always insisted upon the necessity of unity among the ministers, and as Scotland at this time was not ready for a union movement among the representatives of all denominations, he decided to accept the many urgent invitations to visit Ireland. His first mission was in Belfast where he began on Sunday, September 6, 1874, with a service at 8 a.m. in Dungalls Square Church. This meeting was exclusively for Christian workers, and long before the hour named, the chapel was crowded. Mr. Moody discussed the necessity of entire devotion to the work and unwearied labor for the Lord. In the evening, the third meeting of the day was held in the largest church in the city, capable of holding 2,000 people. But here again, the streets were crowded with those unable to secure admission. The daily noon prayer meeting was held in Dungul's Square Chapel, but the room was so overcrowded that it seemed advisable to adjourn to a building seating 1,400 people. Here, as elsewhere, this noon meeting became the center of the movement, and proved a great blessing to the work and workers. Evening meetings began the first day in the Rosemary Street Church, but the crowds were so great and caused so much inconvenience that Mr. Moody changed his plans somewhat and held a meeting at 2 p.m., exclusively of women, and a meeting in the evening in another church for men. As the work went on, the interest increased rapidly. The audiences consisted mostly of young men, and the number of strangers who visited Belfast from long distances was very large. Within ten days after the first meeting, the movement spread to Bangor, ten miles distant, where Henry Morehouse, Reverend H. W. Williamson, and others preached. Soon after the meetings began, Mr. Moody published the following letter, calling upon the Christians throughout Great Britain to hold daily noon prayer meetings. During the revival of God's work in America in 1857 and 1858, In nothing was the power of God's Spirit more manifest than in the gatherings that came together at twelve o'clock in the day for prayer and praise. Many of the meetings commenced at the time are still continued, with an almost constant and visible result attending them. In hearing from time to time of the blessing connected with these noon prayer meetings in America, a strong desire for similar meetings in their own towns has come to the heart of many. And the thought has occurred to us that if such meetings were started in the different towns of the kingdom, similar to those in Edinburgh and Glasgow, they might be the means of a very great blessing. Could no such meeting be started, commenced on the 1st of October and continued until January 1st, making three months of united prayer for a blessing on the country at the noontime hour? May not the results be beyond our estimation? The noon prayer meetings at Newcastle, Edinburgh, and Glasgow are still kept up. And if God blesses these places as we believe in answer to prayer, is He not able and willing to bless others? The question may arise, how can these meetings be started? I would suggest that a few Christians, clerical or lay, should get a suitable room which will be comfortable and easy of access. Then select the leader for each day a week in advance, with a request that he open the meeting at the half hour, advertising not only the leader for each day, but also the subject for prayer and thought at the meeting. If these meetings are thrown open for everyone to speak or pray as he may feel led, with an occasional psalm or hymn sung from the heart, I believe many would be glad to attend, and doing so would go away refreshed. After starting the meetings, let them be well made known. Let the notice of them not only be given from the pulpit and from the weekly church prayer meetings, but also advertised constantly in the newspapers, with the names of the leaders and the subject for the day. There may be occasionally a person who will take up more time than he ought, but if such a thing should occur, or if anyone whose character is known to be doubtful should be prominent, let one of the brethren go to such a one privately, and in a spirit of love, talk with him. Again I urge, will not God's children all over the United Kingdom meet at the noon hour, and unite their prayers with those of Christians in different towns for the mighty blessing? He says, Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things. Has not the time come for the church of God to arise and call on our God for a blessing? Thousands of our young men are fast passing to a drunkard's grave, while many of our young women are being drawn into worldliness. Will not the fathers and mothers, if there is not one else to meet, come together at the noontide hour and ask for a blessing on their children? I trust there may be a united cry going up to God for a blessing all over the land. (laughs) Surely God will answer the cry of his children." Shall we say, There are yet four months, and then cometh the harvest? Or shall we arise now, and with prayers put in the sickle and gather? If he is with us, we are able to possess the land, and no giant, however great, can hinder. When in response to this letter the central noon meeting was established in Moorgate Street Hall, London, Mr. Moody sent this telegram. Daily meeting of Belfast sends greeting to the Christians of London. Our prayer is that the meeting may become a great blessing to many. He must increase, but I must decrease. Open-air meetings were held on Sunday afternoons, attended by the thousands who could not get into the churches or halls. The first Sunday, Mr. Moody spoke upon the text, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, following this by a meeting for inquirers only in the Ulster Hall, the largest public building in the city. Not the least gratifying feature of the Belfast meeting was the bringing together of all evangelical denominations—Presbyterian, Episcopalians, Methodists, and Baptists mingled without distinction. One night— In Rosemary Street Church, the Reverend Mr. Dickinson of the Mariner's Episcopal Church was one of the busiest among the inquirers. And on another evening, an Episcopal clergyman occupied the pulpit of the Eglinton Street Presbyterian Church. At the close of the Edinburgh Mission, it was said that 1,400 people had professed conversion. People who did not believe in the work, however, asserted that 1,100 of these were women, hinting that this kind of thing could only make progress among women and weak-minded men. When he arrived in Glasgow, therefore, Mr. Moody made a special prayer that he might be able to refute this notion by being honoured in the conversion of young men, and this wish was so far gratified, that when he was about to leave the city, and held a meeting for those who believed they had been brought to Christ since his coming, of the thirty-two hundred who attended, sixteen hundred and thirty were men. Baffled in this matter, the enemies of the work now found a new cause of fault-finding. They could not deny that many men had been blessed. But they suggested that these were not of a class which most needed conversion, the abandoned class of the community. When coming to Belfast therefore, Mr. Moody prayed that he might be specially able to do good to this class. His prayer had so far been answered that the first three converts who rose to tell that they had been changed men were former drunkards. An open-air meeting was held October 8th, one of the largest ever seen in Ireland. Mr. Moody addressed a vast multitude on the words, I pray thee, have me excused. The last meeting in Belfast was on the evening of October 16th. It was designed for those who had reason to believe that they had become converted during the meetings. Admission was strictly by ticket, received only on personal application, and 2,250 tickets were given out. Londonderry was next visited. The meetings were largely attended by young and old of all classes, from this and surrounding districts. Excursion trains brought many, while hundreds walked and drove many miles. The attendance steadily increased to the close while a noticeable feature in connection with the meeting was the large number of clergymen present. The prevailing characteristic of all the meetings was intense earnestness and solemnity without, however, any undue excitement. The services seemed to awaken the liveliest interest in the public mind and to produce a marked impression. The inquiry meetings after the first night were very well attended, large numbers remaining for conversion and prayer with Mr. Moody and the Christian workers. The work in Dublin had been preceded by a general prayer meeting, made up largely of members of all evangelical denominations of the city, the clergymen working cordially together, without the least shade of envy or party spirit. The Rev. Dr. Marble of the Church of England presided at the first service, supported by Presbyterians, Wesleyans, and others. On the following day the management secured the use of the Exhibition Palace, the largest and most commodious building which had up to that time been placed at Mr. Moody's disposal, and here, as elsewhere, the same general interest was at once awakened. A correspondent of the Christian of London, writing at this time, says, the inhabitants of Dublin are becoming alive to the fact that we are now in the enjoyment of a great time of refreshing, and that our gracious God is working powerfully among us by the instrumentality of these, his honored servants. Such a sight has never been witnessed here, as may now be seen every day, thousands flocking to the prayer meeting, into the Bible reading, and most of all to the evening services in the great Exhibition Palace. It fills the heart of a child of God with the deepest emotion, to stand upon the platform from which Mr. Moody preaches, and to cast one's eye over the vast concourse of people hanging on the speaker's lips, as in burning words he discourses of life and death, and Jesus and his love. One cannot but ask the question, what is the magic power which draws together these mighty multitudes and holds them spellbound? Is it the worldly rank, or wealth of learning, or oratory of the preacher? No, for he is possessed of little of those. It is the simple lifting up of the cross of Christ— holding forth the Lord Jesus before the eyes of the people, in all the glory of His Godhead, in all the simplicity of His manhood, in all the perfection of His nature, for their admiration, for their acceptance. As an Episcopal minister, I am most thankful to see many of the dear brethren in my own church, as well as of the other evangelical churches attending and taking part in these happy services. May each of us receive a blessing, and in turn be made a blessing to our flocks. An able and godly minister stated a day or two ago that by attendance at these services he seems to have returned to the freshness of his spiritual youth, a sentiment worthy of a noble man and a generous heart. The active cooperation of the Episcopalians and the respect and tact sympathy manifested by some of the Roman Catholics were notable features of Mr. Moody's work in Ireland at this time. The leading Roman Catholic paper of the city gave full information respecting the work and was extremely friendly toward it. In The Nation, an article appeared entitled, Fair Play, in which the editor informed his constituents that the deadly danger of the age comes upon us from the direction of Huxley and Darwin and Tyndale, rather than from Moody and Sankey. Irish Catholics desire to see Protestants deeply imbued with a religious feeling rather than teemed with rationalism and infidelity. And so long as the religious services of our Protestant neighbors are honestly directed to quickening religious thought in their own body, without offering aggressive or intentional insult to us, it is our duty to pay the homage of respect to their conscientious convictions in a word to do as we would be done by Mr. Moody now returned to England and visited Manchester Sheffield Birmingham and Liverpool with marked success in Manchester particularly he did much for the young men's christian association after a stirring appeal for a billing fund he took up a collection of one thousand eight hundred pounds for the purpose In speaking of the definite results of the meeting in Manchester, the Reverend W. Rigby Murray wrote to the Christian, If one class has been blessed more than another during these past weeks, it has been the regular Christian ministers. I am sure I voice the sentiment of all my brethren who have thrown themselves heart and soul into the movement when I say that we have received nothing less than a fresh baptism of the Holy Ghost. Our souls have been quickened. Our faith in the adaptation of the glorious gospel of the blessed God to the wants and longings of the human spirit have been deepened. Our sense of the magnitude and responsibility of our offices, as Heaven's ambassadors, charged with a message of reconciliation and love for the guiltiest of the guilty and the vilest of the vile, has been greatly increased. Mr. Moody has demonstrated to us in a way at once startling and delightful that, after all, the grand levers of raising souls out of the fearful pit and the miry clay are just the doctrines which our so-called advanced thinkers are trying to persuade the Christian world to discard as antiquated and impotent. These are the doctrines of the atoning death of Jesus Christ, the doctrine of a living, loving, personal Savior, and the doctrine of the new birth by the Spirit and the Word of Almighty God. One of the ablest ministers at the noon prayer meeting on the last day of the year solemnly declared that, whereas the first of these cardinal verities have not been fully realized by him before these services commenced, he now felt it to be a spring of joy and satisfaction to his soul, such as language could hardly express. And then how shall I speak of the gladness which filled our hearts as we heard, almost from day to day, of conversions in our congregations, of parents rejoicing over sons and daughters brought to Jesus, of young men consecrating their manhood and strength to God, and of converts offering themselves for all departments of Christian service? If our dear friend Mr. Moody had accomplished nothing more than the quickening of the ministers of this great center population, and the stirring us up to greater devotion to our glorious calling as labors together with God, his visit would not have been in vain." Give us a revived ministry, and we shall soon see a revived church. What is to be done for the unsaved masses? Mr. Moody asked while in Sheffield. In answering his own inquiry, he said that he had found a spiritual famine in England, such as he had never dreamed of. Here, for instance, in this town of Sheffield, he said, I am told that there are one hundred and fifty people who not only never go near a place of worship, but from whom there is actually no church accommodation provided, even if they were willing to take advantage of it. It seems to me that if there be upon God's earth one blacker sight than these thousands of Christless and graceless souls, it is the thousands of dead and slumbering Christians living in their very midst, rubbing shoulders with them every day upon the streets, and never so much as lifting up a little finger to warn them of death and eternity and judgment to come. Talk of being sickened at the sight of the world's degradation. Ah, let those who are Christians hide our faces because of our own, and pray God deliver us from the guilt of the world's blood. I believe that if there is one thing which pierces the master's heart with unutterable grief, it is not the world's iniquity, but the church's indifference. He then argued that every Christian man and woman should feel that the question was not one for ministers and elders and deacons alone, but for them as well. It is not enough, he said, to give alms. Personal service is necessary. I may hire a man to do some work, but I can never hire a man to do my work. Alone before God, I must answer for that, and so must we all." On the last day of the old year, 1874, the meetings at Sheffield were begun. The first meeting was held in the Timber's Hall at 9 p.m., beginning with the new hymn, afterwards so famous, written by Dr. Horatius Bonner, Rejoice be glad, the Redeemer has come. Just before the hour of midnight, Mr. Moody asked all those who desired the prayers of Christians to rise. For a time, none were willing to do so, but soon a few stirred up, and the Christians were asked to pray for them. Just then the bells began to ring in the new year. And with a prayer by Mr. Moody, one of the most solemn meetings of the series was closed. Following the Sheffield mission, Mr. Moody held a two-week series of meetings in Birmingham. The Town Hall, Carr's Lane Chapel, and Bingley Hall were found none too large for the audiences which attended. During the first eight days of their stay in that city, the total attendance at the three halls were estimated at 106,000. Dr. W. R. Dale was at first inclined to look with disfavor on the movement and stood aloof. As the interest continued, however, he became more impressed, and attended the meetings regularly. Of Mr. Moody's own power, he says, "'I find it difficult to speak. It is so real, and yet so unlike the power of ordinary preachers, that I hardly know how to analyze it. Its reality is indisputable. Any man who can interest and impress an audience of from three to six thousand people for half an hour in the morning, and for three-quarters of an hour in the afternoon,' and who can interest a third audience of thirteen or 15,000 people for three-quarters of an hour again in that evening, must have power of some kind. Of course, some people listened without caring much for what he said, but though I generally sat in a position which enabled me to see the kind of impression he produced, I rarely saw many faces which did not indicate the most active and earnest interest. The people were of all sorts, old and young, rich and poor, tradesmen, manufacturers and merchants, young ladies who had just left school, cultivated women, and rough boys who knew more about dogs and pigeons than about books. For a time I could not understand it. I am not sure that I understand it now. At the first meeting, Mr. Moody's address was simple, direct, kindly, and hopeful. It had a touch of humor and a touch of pathos. It was lit up with a story or two that filled most eyes with tears, but there seemed nothing in it very remarkable. Yet it told. A prayer meeting with an address at eight o'clock on a damp, cold January morning was hardly the kind of thing, let me say it frankly, that I should generally regard as attractive but I enjoyed it heartily. It seemed one of the happiest meetings I have ever attended. There was warmth, and there was sunlight in it. At the evening meeting the same day at Bingley Hall, I was still unable to make out how it was that he had done so much in other parts of the kingdom. I listened with interest, and I was again conscious of a certain warmth and brightness that made the service very pleasant, but I could not see that there was much to impress those who were careless about religious duty. The next morning at the prayer meeting, the address was more incisive and striking and at the evening service I began to see that the stranger had a faculty for making the elementary truths of the gospel intensely clear and vivid. But it still seemed most remarkable that he should have done so much, and on Tuesday I told Mr. Moody that the work was most plainly of God, for I could see no real relation between him and what he had done. He laughed cheerily, and said he should be very sorry if it was otherwise. Scores of us could preach as effectively as Mr. Moody. I felt, and might, therefore with God's good help, be equally successful." In the course of a day or two, however, my mistake was corrected. His preaching had all the effects of Luther. He exulted in the free grace of God. His joy was contagious. Men leaped out of the darkness into light and lived a Christian life afterwards. Dr. Dale did not believe much in evangelists, but he had a profound respect for Mr. Moody and considered that he had a right to preach the gospel, because he could never speak of a lost soul without tears in his eyes. After the work in Birmingham came a mission in Liverpool, where the blessed experience of the preceding weeks were repeated. In this case, no suitable auditoriums could be secured, and a wooden structure, 174 feet long and 124 feet wide, capable of accommodating 10,000 people, was erected at great expense. This was called Victoria Hall. The building was erected in 40 days. At the close of the mission, a convention was held, where the rousing addresses of Dr. Chone of Bradford, Newman Hall of London, Dr. Dale of Birmingham, mr fletcher of dublin another man of large experience produced a profound impression an important feature of the convention was mr moody's hour with the question drawer one little observed but important part of the meeting was the gathering of children every sunday at noon in nearly every town and city visited this was generally organized into a permanent institution while they were still in great britain many of these meetings were held every week and after a time the edinburgh children conceived the idea of opening a friendly christian correspondence between the various meetings, and set the example by sending letters to the Children of Dublin. One of the most interesting meetings at Liverpool was the Children's Service, where Mr. Moody and Mr. Sankey were both present. Some of the papers put down the number in Victoria Hall at 12,000, with an overflow meeting of about 2,000 in Hingler Circus. Mr. Moody gave an address founded on a book with four leaves, red, black, white, and gold, a sort of running interchange of simple yet searching questions and answers. Responses were very promptly given. Mr. Sankey's singing was especially enjoyed by the young people, joined in the choruses with great heartiness. Mr. Moody made an impressive appeal in Victoria Hall to merchants, employers, and friends of young men, the meetings being in connection with the special appeal for funds in behalf of the new Young Men's Christian Association building. The audience was one seldom ever seen in Liverpool. There were men of very different beliefs and nationalities—high churchmen, broad churchmen, Low Churchmen, Orangemen, Wesleyans, Unitarians, Baptists, Presbyterians, Roman Catholics, Jews, Greeks, Spiritualists, and others. Different phases of commercial life were represented. There were present also clergymen, town councillors, liberal and Tory, leading members of the dock board and the select vestry, millionaire shipowners, dealers in every kind of produce, timber merchants, star merchants, tea merchants, corn merchants, provision merchants, brokers, shopkeepers, and many women. When Mr. Moody rose to speak, he said that he was often asked whether he believed in the young men's Christian association. He wanted to say that he did with all his heart. Because they did not have associations in the days of the fathers, he said, a great many churches now thought they were not needed. But that was no fair criterion. Fifty, or one hundred years ago, young men lived at home. They lived in a country home, and did not come into these large cities and centers of commerce as they do now. If they did come, their employers took a personal interest in them. I contend that they do not do so now, at this sturdy utterance of opinion, there was a subdued but perceptible hear, hear from various parts of the hall. since I have come to Liverpool, he said there is hardly a night then, in walking from this hall to my hotel, I do not meet a number of young men reeling through the streets. They may not be your sons, but bear in mind, my friend, they are somebody's sons. they are worth saving. These young men who come to large cities want somebody to take interest in them. I contend that no one can do this so well as the Christian Association. Some ministers claim that associations are doing the church harm. They draw young men away from the church. That is a mistake. They feed the church. They are the handmaids of the church. They are not tearing down the church. They are drawing men into it. I know no institution which helps to draw churches so much together as these young men's Christian associations." Later on the completion of the building for which Mr. Moody had made so strong an appeal, he was requested by alexander balfour the president of the youngman's christian association of liverpool to place the memorial tablet of the new structure which bears the inscription this memorial stone was laid by d l moody of chicago march second eighteen seventy five one who is present at the liverpool meetings thus described the deep impression made upon the public men who wrote and spake against the movement men who laughed at it went to hear and came away with changed thoughts the six thousand people at the Day prayer meeting six thousand at the afternoon bible lecture and ten thousand at the evening meeting with the inquiry rooms full is something that even the exchange has to admit but beyond this there is the mighty power of god's spirit working and acting which no tables can register no numbers record following mr moody henry drummond held meetings for young men in liverpool with an average attendance of fourteen hundred nightly of mr drummond it was said his gentleness is only surpassed by the earnestness with which he carries out and controls the most successful service To learn more about God's peculiar people, visit the links in the description.